If I wear the headset, that means I'll have uh, cords flapping around, and that's distracting to me and maybe to you as well. So we'll just stick with the, the pulpit here. For millennia, mankind assumed that, that the earth was the, the center of the universe. They, they believed that the earth was here and the moon spun around the earth and the sun went around that and the stars went around everything else. The earth was the center of everything. After all, when you look up in the sky, that's how it looks, right? It, it's logical. It makes sense when you, you see that from here. It wasn't until the 1500s that Copernicus argued that the earth revolved around the sun instead. There was a lot of resistance when that idea came about. It was a radical change to the understanding of reality. But eventually, Copernicus was proved correct. That the problem is one of perception. Things were not as it appeared from our initial perception. You know, even though we understand intellectually that the Earth is not the, the center of the cosmos, at some intuitive level, we all tend to think that we are still the center of the universe. That the world, the universe, everything that here somehow revolves around us. We, we know in our heads that, that we're not the center of the universe, but in our hearts, there's a different struggle. As we look at Paul's letter to the Colossians today, we'll see that, that much like Copernicus delivered this radical change in understanding to the physical reality of the cosmos, we need Christ to radically change our understanding of our logical universe. We looked last week at part of, of a thought that Paul had. If you were here with us last week, you, you may recall that I cut pit up, Paul off mid-thought, and, and that troubled me at least. I don't know if it troubled you, but it troubled me that I was cutting him off midstream. But, but in verses 5 through 11 of, of Colossians 3, Paul has one long thought. It's a thought that really deals with putting off the old and putting on the new. We lay aside the old self much as I laid aside my coat, and I'm not going to illustrate putting on the new yet because I don't want to put the coat back on. It's a little too warm. Paul gave us this contrast of the old life to the new, the former to the new. Thing was, Paul has so much to say about each side of that contrast that I decided to split into two weeks. Last week, we looked at the old life, what we laid aside, that former life that was our pre-Christ life. This week, we'll begin looking at the new. We, we should remember that the Paul's been making an overall point here now for several paragraphs that, that we need to keep our gaze fixed on Christ. He is to be the center of our thoughts. We've been visualizing our, our Christian life as this straight road that has these dangerous cliffs on both sides. One side is the dangerous cliff represented by what we've called legalism, the, the idea that, that somehow we could do something to earn our righteousness. Satan tries to dangle these distractions around us to convince us that, you know, if we just put more effort in our righteousness, we'll be okay with God. And before we know it, we're over that cliff. Paul says, keep your gaze on Christ. Well, last week we started to look at the cliff on the other side that's just as dangerous as the other opposite. We called it antinomianism last week, licentiousness. It's the idea that if we cannot earn our righteousness, then, well, maybe it doesn't matter what we do. We can live life however we want. Satan loves to dangle that out there for us, too. After all, that is, as we saw last week, what our former life loved, just living life for self. So Satan just dangles out what 
we naturally like anyway. And before we know it, we can be over that cliff. It's the danger that Paul is addressing of that second cliff, the idea that we can live life however we want, that is this paragraph that we began last week, looking at laying aside all of that which is former. Paul says we need to follow Christ. Yes, Christ is our righteousness. We stand and rise in him. That keeps us from the danger on this side. But following Christ means we will pursue righteousness as Christ is. That keeps us from the danger on the other side. Keeping our gaze fixed on Christ results in pursuing righteousness. This morning, let's start by by looking at our text. I want to back up and read the entire paragraph. So we'll begin at verse 5 of Colossians 3. Paul writes, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put aside, put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. We laid aside the old life. We put on a new one. Just as I said we, last week, we lay aside dirty clothes and, and, and then we put on clean ones. That, that's what faith in Christ has accomplished for us. It, it's given us this, this new life. Last week, we, we noted as we were looking at verse 9 there that it's laid aside. It's a past tense. It's already occurred. Also note verse 10, have put on this week. That as well as a past tense. Paul is saying these activities, these are in our history now. If we have faith in Jesus Christ, remember... Paul is assuming in this writing he's writing to believers. He's writing to Christians in this church. He's writing to those who understand that Christ died on their behalf, that they've accepted that. They ask God to take his payment in their behalf. His assumption by the time he gets here is these are believers. So he can say, this has happened to you. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't know what I'm talking about or this has not happened to you, you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ for your Savior, then what I'm saying this morning doesn't apply directly to you, but it can. You can know Jesus as Savior. Talk to me after the service. Catch me in the lobby. I will love to share with you how you can know Christ as Savior and and all the assumptions that are baked into what Paul is saying here already about faith in Christ. I'll spend as much time as we need this afternoon to do that. Send me an email. I'll set an appointment this week. Paul is talking to believers here. It's important that you understand that, and if you're not a believer, you need to know what that means. So talk to me. Through those who have faith in Jesus Christ, Paul is writing because of that. He says, we have new life. It's happened. It's an accomplished fact. There's nothing that we need to do. The moment we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, that old self was put off, as we talked about last week, and the new self was put on. 
The main idea that comes as we consider the new life side, the, the second half of the contrast, where we split right at the, the contrast here, the, the new life side of this former life, new life contrast, is that our new life is centered on Christ. Christ just doesn't make it happen. He becomes the center of this new life. Christ is who we are to keep our gaze fixed on because he is the center of our lives. We don't look at these distractions on either side of the road because we look to Christ. He's the focus of our life. Our new life is centered on him. It's a simple idea. I don't even need to explain it, I think, to, for you to understand. You get the idea of being centered. It, but it's the difference between thinking the earth is the center of the universe and knowing it isn't. Christ is the center of our universe. He is the center of our life. We are not. And because Christ is the center of our life, Paul brings out two stupendous results that come with a new life centered on Christ. That's where he spends his time. Instead of telling us that we need to have him in the center, that's a fact. If you believe in Jesus Christ, he is the center of your life. These are the two results. One, our new life is returning us to our original design. Read that again. Our new life is returning us to our original design. That's the idea that comes out of verse 10. The, the have put on the new self, as I said, that, that's past tense. That's happened. Initial faith equals putting on the new self. We, we cannot have faith in Christ without the new self coming with it. That's all part and parcel of one thing. Such is not the case, however, with the is being renewed part of the verse. That is being renewed is not past tense. That, that refers to a present, ongoing activity. That's something that we are experiencing now, not in the past. The, the way I worded that is, is that we are experiencing returning to our original design. Think about it. Design intent is important, isn't it? Often we, we can make do with something by, by using something that's not quite designed for the function that we need to accomplish. We can make do. I, I don't know how many times I've opened a paint can with a screwdriver. I, I can make do with a screwdriver, but the screwdriver is not designed for opening that paint can. You know, when I put the screwdriver on, sometimes it slips out from under the lid. The tool that's designed to open the paint can has a little lip that matches the paint lid. It hooks in there. It doesn't slip. When I use the screwdriver, a lot of times my lids get bent as I'm using it, working my way around. You, you know the tool that's designed to open paint can has a slight curve that just matches the paint lid so that when you walk it around, it's not bending your paint can? The design intent is important. Well, verse 10, Paul is using here the language of design. The, the word that we have translated as renew, it's a word that means to make something like new, to give it that like new condition once again. It, it speaks of restoration. To that idea, Paul adds in the, the idea of image. That, that recalls the language of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That was Genesis chapter 1. That is the original design intent for humans. Humans were designed to display the image of God all throughout creation. God was going to feel his image, as Tim Feebig reminded us last week in the DIY challenge. He filled his creation with these little image bearers that then would be giving praise to him, that would be showing his glory, that would reflect his glory throughout all of his creation. Our original design is that we were meant to serve as brilliant displays of the image of our Creator. Unfortunately, we did not live up to our original design intent. Genesis 3 comes along and we have the fall. And we see that man's original design was marred by sin. That that design intent has been messed up Seriously messed up by the fall. All we have to do is look around us and we see the mess. All we have to do is read these verses about our former life and see all the ugliness of verse 5 and the, 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 the distress that would come from the, the things in verses 8 and 9. And, and we recognize that that design intent's been messed up. We're unable to live up to it now. In first chapter of this letter, though, in verse 15 of chapter 1, Paul reminded us that Christ is the perfect image of God. Christ lived up to our original design. He was the perfect image of God. There was no flaw in his image bearing like there is in the rest of the human race. Now, to that idea that Christ is the perfect image bearer, the one who has no flaw, Paul adds that we are in a state of becoming like Christ is. Let that thought sink in. We are becoming what Christ is. This becoming like Christ, it's extensive. We're not just imitating Christ, we're becoming like him in the true knowledge of him. That means to the fullest extent, we are being restored to our original design intent, being image bearers of God. Now, during the summer, there are a lot of old car shows around the area. It's not unusual at all when you drive around this area to see parking lots that are filled with, with old cars on display. I'm not a car guy. Most time, I don't even know what cars are out there. But from time to time, I have looked briefly at the cars. And, and you know, as I've walked through these lots, I have never seen a car on display that is falling apart from rust. They gleam and, and sparkle. They don't have rust all over them. Nor as I walk around in these old car displays have I ever seen one that's been chopped up or converted into some function that was not its original function. I, I don't see a car that's been chopped in half and converted into some sort of, of self-converted camper, for example. What I see are pristine vehicles paint that glistens in the sunlight. In fact, if somebody stops by and leans on the car too long, pretty soon the owner's over there wiping off the paints or, or the fingerprints. The, the motors, they gleam. The upholstery is spotless. The, the vehicles are on display by their proud owners because they've been restored to their original design. I, I suspect that some of them probably are even better than when they were first produced. We are being restored to our original design. 
Does that excite you? Are you excited that you are being restored to a condition like you were originally designed to be? One that we have never experienced. So in our individual case, we can say we are being restored to a condition far better than we've ever experienced. All the rust and the tears that have accumulated in our lives through sin are being removed. Anything that keeps us from displaying the glory of God is under repair. Christ is the perfect template that's being used for our restoration. Now, of course, some of the repairs are easier than others. When, when we're working with our restoration expert, Christ, when he is involved in that restore work in our lives, are we working with him or against him? Are, are we making this restoration process easier or more difficult? Christ is the pattern of our restoration, but he's also the restore. He is the one doing the work within us. To, to work with him, we need to know him. After all, we're being restored to the true knowledge of him. That means we need to know him. The more we know of him, the, the faster that, that we gain that true knowledge of him, the, the smoother our restoration to this original design intent will go. That brings us back to our gaze. Is your gaze fixed on Christ? Or is your gaze wandering around at all the distractions that, that the sin-filled world offers? There, there's no end to the amount of things that attempt to distract us from Christ. There's things on this side of the road. There's things on that side. Are you gazing at Christ? Do you want to be like Christ? Or do you want to be like the very celebrities or the sports personalities the, the people that our culture tells us are, are worth emulating, the influencers of the day. Who are you using as a pattern for your life? Christ? Or others that the culture says are respectful? I don't care if you're the youngest child here this morning or, or if you're the oldest saint. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are being renewed. It's happening. It is underway. The, the question is whether it's happening quickly and smoothly or is it slowly in difficulty because our restorer has to keep fixing what he's already fixed because we keep throwing rust back in where he's already smoothed it out. You know, I personally would much rather have my restoration process go quickly. I, I want to serve as one of God's projects that he can put out on display. I don't want to have to be stuck back in the garage still under repair. God is working. Yet the only way I can influence the rate at which my personal project completes is by keeping my gaze on Christ. I can do that. I can place him at the center of my life. I can work to know him more fully. I can strive to live like him. He's the one who does the restoring. I simply can aid or hinder the process. Our new life is centered on Christ. That's the simple truth this morning. We have a new life and it is centered on Christ. The first stupendous result is that this new life is returning us to our original design intent. It's returning us back to that and that should excite us and it should motivate us to keep our gaze fixed on Christ. In verse 11, 
we have a second stupendous result. Another thing that comes from the fact, the fact that our new life is centered on Christ. Our new life supersedes earthly distinctions. That's idea number two. The second stupendous result, our new life supersedes earthly distinctions. As we hit verse 11, you may see in some of your translations even a long dash or something before the verse to set it apart because Paul takes a sudden turn in a direction we don't expect him to go. In the previous verses, he, when he was talking about the old self, and even in verse 10 when he began talking about the new self, he's talking about our individual life as Christians. As individuals, we put off all the old stuff and we're putting on this new self. The things in those verses concern each of us individually. And then verse 11, Paul suddenly shifts. He shifts from us individually to us collectively as a group, to the church. Our new life has a stupendous impact on our association as a group. The impact is that our new life in Christ supersedes earthly distinctions. You know, part of the human condition, part of being human, our humanity, is that we naturally affiliate ourselves in groups. It just happens. If you have a number of people gathered, gather, they will affiliate themselves in group. We form groups based on some likeness. We, we connect with people because in, in some manner that we consider important, we and these other people are the same. Now, I've been talking about Car Restoration Day, and I warned Joe I'm going to pick on Joe Schmuck this morning. Joe won't be here after this Sunday for a few weeks because Joe is going to a car show. Joe and his Hudson are going down to Missouri to join a group of Hudson enthusiasts. Joe affiliates with that group because they share the love of Hudson cars that Joe has. You know, there's unique groups that all of us connect with, just like Joe and the, the Hudson car group. We all have groups that, that we affiliate, but there's also larger, really I would say more generic groups that, that we tend to fall into as well. People that, that we just naturally connect with, that we distinguish ourselves from others based on these characteristics, these groups. We're in this group of people, or we're not. That's how we look at things. And Paul lists the main distinctives that people used in his day, categories that they used to classify some of these generic groups. We're largely, surprisingly, using the same groups still today. We might name them different, but the things that Paul points to in these characteristics, they're the same things that we use to distinguish ourselves. And yet the overall point that Paul is making is that because of Christ, all of these natural groups are superseded by a new group, the church. A new group. Let's look briefly at the categories that Paul lists. He, he uses pairs to make his distinctions. The, the first pair is Greek or Jew. That, that's the primus, primary way the people in Colossae, the, the city he's writing to here, that's the primary way that they would divide people based on nationality or race. The, the Jews were considered different from all the other people in the city. They were a different nationality. They had a different physical appearance. They, they spoke a different language. They, they dressed in a different manner. They, they ate different foods. They, they were not Greek. It's that simple. Paul says there's Greeks and there's Jews based on nationality or race. Well, we don't classify people as Greek or Jews. 
Frankly, we'd all fit in the Greek category if we did. But we certainly tend to distinguish people by, by nationality and race, don't we? we? We identify people around us as Polish or Indian or Chaldean or Filipino or German or Italian. I picked on most people in here today, but I know I missed a few. We identify people as black, white, brown, yellow. We use these names to represent distinguishing characteristics that are unique to each group. That's all Paul is doing in the first pair. Next, Paul lists circumcised and uncircumcised. Now he's pointing to a religious distinction. There, there is clearly some overlap here as the Jews were the circumcised. Yet, yet Paul's bringing out the idea that at least on the, the part of the Jews, the, the circumcised, when they considered religion, the, the people in this group thought they had an advantage over all the others. They, they thought they believed to a, a favored group. Likely, if you had asked those in the uncircumcised group, they would have felt they were advantaged as well with whatever religion they were using. Well, again, we use different names for our religious groups, but, but we certainly have them, don't we? Most people can quickly distinguish themselves from others based on some religious identity. And it's quite common to find people who feel that their religious identity gives them some sort of advantage. After all, the reason people follow religion is because they believe in it. If you didn't think it gave you an advantage, why believe in it? Well, next comes barbarian and Scythian. Unlike the other pairs, these two words are not a contrasting pair. Rather, they reflect the way a Greek person, the, the people of, the, of class A, would describe the rest of the world from a cultural perspective. There's barbarians. The, the barbarians are non-Greeks. And what made them particularly unique is they did not appreciate or enjoy the Greek culture. And the Scythians, they, they were considered the lowest of the barbarians. They were the least cultured of the uncultured. Well, there's obviously a lot of overlap between nationality and race and religion and culture. These, these things interact. Nonetheless, we still continue to place high value on culture. Think about our community here. All around us, we have a number of buildings that have labels on them, blank cultural center. People are holding on to some aspect of their culture. There's usually an ethnic ethnicity associated with it. Uh, it's just half a mile away. We have the Chaldean Cultural Center. But not only are they holding on to the ethnicity, they're holding on to an element of the culture that they identify, certain traditions. And these traditions help distinguish themselves from other people. We, we all know people who pride themselves as well on being supporters of the higher culture. Those who, who are high culture, unlike most of us that would be in what Eliot called the, the Philistines, you know, the, the uncultured Philistines, that's most of us. Because most of us don't like high culture. We don't spend our, our days going and listening to classical music and operas and things of that nature all the time. We're, we're many of us Philistines. Well, Paul says those are ways we distinguish ourselves. And then he lists slaves and freemen, terms that distinguish social opposites of the day. Slaves were considered property. Freemen were considered people who could have a voice in the society, as extreme opposite as you could get. Thankfully, we no longer use those social classifications in our country. Still, distinguishing groups based on, on social or economic status is not unusual. All you have to do is turn on TV and you hear about the upper, middle, and lower class all the time. 
Paul lists all these distinctions, but he does so while saying that in the new self, these do not ex exist because instead Christ is all and in all. Now I want to make sure we understand what Paul's point here. Paul writes something very similar in his letter to the Galatians in Galatians 3.28. He writes something similar in his first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12.13. Many times telling us that in Christ, these old distinctions no longer matter. And in all three cases when he says they do not exist, Paul does not mean that, that by coming to faith in Christ, suddenly our nationality and our culture and our social status changes. We are what we are. Now, I've been a Christian for many years, but my nationality is still American because I was born in the United States. My ethnicity remains German. That hasn't changed. I still have the name Schultz at the end of, of my name. My bank account has never overflowed, and, and by God's grace, it's never completely drained. So, so I remain in the middle class. I still do not appreciate opera. I can readily slot myself into all sorts of, of natural categories. And, and being a Christian hasn't changed that. Those di distinctions, they, they remain part of my life. Paul isn't saying that we lose these. He's not saying these, these earthly distinctions disappear. What he's saying is that they are superseded by a new distinction. My salvation has cast me into a category, the category of the church. I am part of the church. This is a group of people who have Christ in the center of their lives. When we talk about church membership, we say, you know, what membership does is it, it is a dividing line between those who have Christ officially at the center of their life and those who are living as if self is at the center of their life. The world has self at the center. The church has Christ at the center. By coming to faith, we are part of this group. This is a group of people that are indwelt by Christ. That's the point he's making here when he says that Christ is all and in all. They're indwelt by Christ. They're now part of this group. I'm part of this group, and so are you if you know Jesus Christ as Savior. The thing is, this new group will find people from all these former earthly categories, people from all nationalities and races and religions and cultures and social economic categories. They will all be gathered together into this new group. And in this new group, these earthly distinctions no longer matter. Of course, I will bring out the caveat that religion for everyone will change to Christian in the new group. You're not going to remain a Hindu and be in Christ. But his point is, whatever your former religion was, that won't matter because there was no religion that gave you an advantage. It doesn't matter if a person grew up in a Baptist church or is a Wiccan. You need Christ. And none of the other distinctions that earthly considerations hold up give any advantage or hindrance to being in the group called church either. We are all in Christ, indwelt by Christ, forming the church of Christ. Now, most likely, I, I suspect that we don't have a problem understanding Paul's point. The concept is not that difficult. I, I, I give all of you enough credit to hang in there with me. I think we get the point. 
It's not hard to understand Christ is the center. It's not hard to think that because he's the center, these old distinctions don't matter. All we have to do is look around the room, and we can see that Paul has brought a lot of people together from different groups. You look around, and you see that. It's obvious here. Paul's brought people from different backgrounds into his church, and our local church displays that. We get it that the church has people from all sorts of earthly distinctions. I believe where the rub comes for us is not in the understanding. It's in the implication of this fact. The implication that the church supersedes these earthly distinctions. Because supersedes means that our new life in Christ should be the primary way we identify ourselves. These other things still exist, but they are far second. Our primary identification is Christian. We are Christian first. I believe that's where the rub comes, because frankly, that is not how we live day by day. We still live as if these other distinctions are at least on the same level as Christian, maybe even higher. I know I I ask you to do this exercise often, and I'm going to ask you again. Sit here this morning and mentally examine your past week. In your mind, go back seven days. Think through those seven days. How much of this past week demonstrates that your new life supersedes your earthly distinctions? How much free time have you spent with people in this room? I say free time because there's work time and God providentially gives us work to meet our needs, but that work time is pretty much dictated how we spend it. But we all have free time by God's grace too. How much of your free time, the time where you can actually choose how you will spend it, is spent because the church is the most important thing in your life? The people of God come first. Even in this room, when you seek people to interact with in this room, is it because you have Christ in common or because you have Christ plus some earthly distinction? I ask that because most of the time when when I hear that our church needs more something, the, the something is usually built around one of our earthly distinctions. The, the frequent um, suggestion that, that comes, we, well, a suggestion will come, and frequently that, that suggestion will have an aspect that we should have something that gives us more Christ, teaching about him, maybe a Bible study or, or classes or gatherings or something, something that gives us more Christ, something that will teach us about Christ, but in a group setting that allows us to spend our church time with people who are part of one of our other earthly groups. You know, there was an entire church strategy a few decades ago that that used this idea and promoted it strongly. It was the idea of constructing church programs around earthly distinctions. So everything was done by demographics. It might be age demographic, it might be uh, our, our sexual demographic, it might be our ethnicity, but use some demographic and build your programs around that. And it was a very successful growth strategy if success is designed, or or defined rather, as getting people to come to the gatherings. 
problem with the strategy of building church around earthly distinctions. The, the problem even with our, really our natural desire to construct church programs and activities around our earthly groups is that it's natural. It's not supernatural. It's not Christ. It fails to display the glorious truth that Paul informs us is part of our new life. Our earthly distinctions are superseded by Christ. The world around us doesn't see that Christ supersedes everything if all we do is huddle in groups that they huddle in as well. If we huddle around our natural distinctions, we should have an intentional display of this truth in our church. That our new life supersedes earthly distinctions. We should display that our earthly distinctions are superseded by Christ because it shows our gaze is fixed on Christ and nothing else. Christ. Why would we look to the things that are important in this life if we have put off this life? Why would we Look to those things for our new life when we can focus on Christ, who's the center of our new life. Our new life is centered on Christ. Our new life supersedes earthly distinctions. That's the the second stupendous truth that, that comes with our new life centered on Christ. Copernicus redefined for mankind how we understand the cosmos. He removed the earth from the central place in our understanding of the universe. In a similar manner, Christ removes us from the center of our logical universe. As as we put on the new self, we discover that our new life is centered on Christ. He is the center. This morning, we've learned from Paul these two stupendous truths that our new life centered on Christ brings about. One, our our new life returns us to our original design. Two, our new life supersedes earthly distinctions. We are not the center of our universe. Christ is. Let's celebrate that fact by by rejoicing and living out the implications of the true truths that Paul brings out here. Our new life is centered on Christ. Let's pray. Father, this morning, your word has challenged us to live out the reality of what you have done for us in Christ. Father, as we sit here today, I'm assuming that we are praying as believers so we have Christ in the center of our life. But Father, I also readily confess on our behalf that we all fail to live that out as consistently as we should. We need you to continue your restoration project on us, transform us, so that we live our lives displaying to the world around us the centrality of our Savior. Father, if there is someone here today that does not know Christ as Savior, I pray that you would draw that individual to desire to know more, to want to know how they can have their life transformed by Christ and have the purpose for which they exist become central in their life.
Father, we pray this because we do want to, we desire to, we seek to joyfully magnify our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.